welcome to the Hydric and Struggles Leadership Podcast. Hydric is the premier global provider of senior level executive search and leadership consulting services. Diversity and inclusion, leading through tumultuous times, and building thriving teams and organizations are among the core issues we talk with leaders about every day, including in our podcasts. Thank you for joining the conversation. Hi, Nick Demagistris here, uh, partner in charge of Hydrogen Struggles Boston office and co-leader of our global digital infrastructure practice. In today's podcast, I'm talking to Jim Miller, board member and advisor at The Real Real, Brambles and Deep North, and former CTO and board member of Wayfair and VP of Worldwide Data Center Operations at Google. Jim, welcome. Thank you for taking the time to chat today. Thank you, Nick. It's uh, great to be here. Awesome. So Jim, I wanted to kick the discussion off and just ask for your overall take on the data center industry as a whole, right? I mean, you've seen it from both sides. You've seen it from the, the hyperscaler provider side at Google, the, we'll call it the user side from Wayfair and all the cloud compute needs there. I'm just kind of curious, what are the trends that you've seen? What's next? What is the next five years? What are the headwinds? I'll turn it over to you and I've got some more detailed questions I can pepper in, but I'd love just your take at a high level to start. Sure. You know, it's amazing to me. I, I, I'm now approaching 60. I've spent my entire adult life in data center and computing technology. And we're really seeing this generational shift to hyperscale computing. And you really have to give kudos to Amazon who really started this all out. And now you've got this ecosystem that's being built with the likes of both Azure and Google GCP and a number of other players. The thing that I find most interesting is that, first of all, it's not game over by any stretch. You know, I'm a former Googler, but I'm neutral in most of this now. There is still plenty of room for innovation and evolution. We're nowhere near seeing where this will ultimately end up. Maybe the first wave is to do a lift and shift. And Wayfair certainly went through this when they went to GCP. They basically took their applications and largely lifted them into a hyperscale environment to take advantage of rapid capacity utilization and ramping up, among other things, moving fixed costs to a variable cost, and then taking advantage of many of the resources that the hyperscalers have, particularly in areas like machine learning and artificial intelligence. Now what you're seeing is this whole ecosystem being built up around people building bespoke solutions for in all areas of the stack. Snowflake, Datadog. I mean, we could go on and on and on about everything that's being built right now. Obviously, the whole content delivery ecosystem and network. And then you've got a bunch of tier colo providers and things like that. And, and we're seeing more of the world talk about hybrid, multi-cloud. So you're, you know, that's going to have its own shakeout and evolution as well. But I think one of the most interesting things that's happening right now is, one, uh, re-architect around cloud native apps. And I think everybody's doing that right now. And then also, and this is interesting because I talked to a lot of my counterparts across the industry, and I think many of them are still struggling with, they've taken these large compute jobs and applications, they move them into the cloud, but they still have a very difficult time doing things around capacity planning, cost planning, budgeting, because they really don't understand fully how to actually inflate and deflate and then be able to plan capacity, performance, and then, of course, the cost around all that. And I think that that is a huge opportunity across all the hyperscalers, and probably all of the cloud infrastructure, because that tends to be very homegrown. And again, whether you're on Azure, AWS, or GCP, 
everybody struggles with really understanding like what is the true cost to compute and the cost to serve. So I think there are many, many, many areas that will continue to evolve. It's going to be interesting to see how the whole ecosystem evolves into a true native cloud architecture and infrastructure and applications. You mentioned AWS. I saw recently, so they had a 37% growth year over year. They beat analyst predictions. They're growing like crazy at a scale, 30 billion, 40 billion. It just continues to like blow my mind. Do you see a saturation point there, Jim? Like, is there a point where AWS just can't grow anymore, whether it's security concerns, latency concerns from government or healthcare clients? What do you think slows them down? (laughs) Well, you know, it's funny. When I joined Google, I worked for one of the founders and his selling point to me to come to Google was, well, we're spending a billion dollars on CapEx every year. And in a few years, we'll be spending north of 10 billion. And I, I laughed in his face and said, if we get to half that number, that'll be a compelling job. Well, little did I know that through my tenure there, we would spend almost $70 billion of CapEx and eclipse that $10 billion CapEx mark annually a number of times. To answer your question, if you think about where we are in cloud today, we still have a large number of laggards that are still looking at cloud and cloud technology. So you know, I think we're far away still from what we would call saturation point. But I think there are really two compelling factors. Right now is the ability just to get semiconductor and core processing technology. As everybody knows, was a worldwide semiconductor shortage. That's impacting many of the players right now. In fact, I just saw something in the Wall Street Journal where, you know, Cisco is struggling and people are going to alternatives. So again, I think that that's going to continue to play out for the next year, year and a half at minimum. And then I think there's this whole notion of, and I think this will come in ways of evolution, where people are largely still doing a lift and shift into the cloud. And either they've partially done a re-architecture into cloud native app, or they're doing that as second phase of their cloud migration. And that arguably is even more difficult. And that's going to take time to do because it's largely a change management and a technology management problem. But also it will further enable this ecosystem that you build around cloud native apps. I think you're going to continue to see the growth for the foreseeable future. And then you've got a lot of companies, and I'm on the board of one of these companies that's really just started their cloud migration. And I wouldn't call them a laggard, but they're a more mature industry and they've been slow to adopt cloud technology. But as all of their systems, whether they're HR or finance systems are going cloud, they're in some ways being forced to go to cloud, but they're also seeing the advantage. So I think you'll see this happen in waves, but I don't think we're anywhere near a saturation point in cloud technology yet. You mentioned the chip piece. I think Amazon came out with a press release a couple of months ago about Graviton. They're going to build their own. I think that's a fascinating component to this ecosystem where now Intel is starting to build just chips for cloud computing. You've got startups like Ampere doing the same thing. Do you feel like that will be a competitive differentiator for the hyperscalers, Jim, where if they can build their own chips and build it well, does that set them apart, right? If you think about the big three or Oracle as a big four. It's interesting. I think absolutely that's the case. And I think what we're seeing, and I think about even Google, where we designed our own machine learning chips for both inference and learning. And we really needed that because, and again, I think what NVIDIA has done is amazing, but the capability to go build a custom chip that is custom tailored to a specific workload, job type, 
I think is almost critical because at this scale that you're operating at, and if you look at any of the hyperscalers, they have a gross book value well in excess of 10 billion of capital. The ability to be able to optimize workloads in that type of environment goes straight to the bottom line. So the ability to go and build hardware that's enabled for a particular job or workload and improve the utilization of that entire tech stack and ultimately that entire capital investment at that scale, you would be crazy not to do that. So I think you know this train's left the station and it will continue. You'll see more and more startups and more and more native investment going in with these hyperscalers to go build their own architectures and their own hardware. When you think about leadership in this space, Jim, right? So for today's leaders of these cloud computing or digital infrastructure companies, and then the next generation, based on your experience, what advice would you give the next generation of leaders? It's interesting. You know, I was probably a bit of a unicorn at Google, but I think it served me very well because I'm a technologist at heart, but at the same time, I'm also, I've got a business school degree and, you know, I worked very closely with Google CFO. Because for the amount of money that we were spending on capital and OPEX built around cloud infrastructure, I really had to bring together the technical and the P&L together. I think, you know, in today's cloud world, you have to be very savvy at the technology. And by the way, there are going to be pure play technologists that go build the next generation storage stack or the next generation ML hardware. And I'm not disparaging those people at all, but I think the leaders of this cloud industry really need to think holistically around not only the technology, the customer and the applications that they're providing and the value that they're creating, but also the P&L. Because again, the technology and how it's implemented has profound implications on OPEX and capital utilization for a company. You stepped down off the Wayfair board into the CTO role, I think fall, late 2019, right? Just pre-COVID. <laughs> then you're in the role a few months, COVID happens, you know, you've got to deal with all of that. Talk a little bit about that experience, right? Just from both a leadership standpoint, and then also just as it became more of a remote environment, did the cloud compute needs change? Like how did the infrastructure needs change in that role going through that sort of transition? Yeah, it was really a fascinating experience. I mean, the moral of the story is if you're ever on a board and your board asks you to write a position paper on what the technology work should probably do, you should probably refrain because that put a big target on my back that, oh, we love your solutions or your proposals. You should be our CTO, which kind of led to this circuitous path to become the CTO. But in all seriousness, it was an amazing experience and I would not have traded it for anything. We were very much, at the time that I took over in the summer of 2019 as the interim CTO, we were going through a large lift and shift into the Google Cloud. We had made that decision. I was part of that decision as a board member. And it was fascinating to go from the perspective of being a provider of that infrastructure at Google to being a board member, to being one of the decision makers to go to GCP ultimately, and then actually inherit the project of going to GCP. And then, of course, wrap a global pandemic around it. And everybody knows the dynamics that it had on e-commerce. It was amazing. It was probably one of the, well, it was the highlight of my career and, and a great capstone to go from being basically an advisor to an operator. We could not have done it. And this is not an advertisement at all for Google or GCP, but we could not have done it without being in the cloud. We literally completed the last piece of the lift and shift, which was the storefront move just weeks before 
the meteor rise of demand for e-commerce and for Wayfair when everybody was going work from home. So our ability to be able to actually scale the business and particularly storefront along with all the back-end infrastructure and applications, had we not been on GCP and we've been trying to do that on-prem, I'll be bold enough to say, I don't think we would have been successful. So we got extremely lucky in that almost asymptotic growth to e-commerce adoption. We had just completed our storefront migration literally weeks before that happened. So, you know, sometimes it is better to be lucky than good, so to speak. But I mean, people are going to write books around the pandemic and we still probably haven't seen how this all shakes out. But leading a large scale transformation, both from an org standpoint and technology during a global pandemic, when primarily everybody was working from home, was pretty fascinating. I think the two major takeaways for me was, first and foremost, the resiliency that people demonstrated. Think about it. Most companies like Wayfair went en masse to work from home in a matter of days, if not weeks. And people did it fairly transparently under crazy circumstances of kids being at home, dual parents working, raising kids, all the concerns that people had about health and everything going on. And then in addition to that, I learned a lot about change management and just communicating, over-communicating, being radically transparent with people, even to the point of saying, let's be clear. It's funny. People expected their leadership teams to have all the answers. And I think there was some frustration in the beginning around the fact that we didn't have this. And I, I remember having a town hall one day with a good chunk of the tech org at Wayfair. And I just said, look, let's be perfectly clear. We're making this up as we go along. This is so unprecedented. You all think we have the answers. You know, you think that we have this crystal ball. We don't. We're like you making it up as we go along. And I think they were probably equally shocked by that admission and pleasantly surprised that we were just on completely new territory and we were making it up as we went along. And I think there was a collective sigh of relief, like, wow, if they don't have it figured out, that means that I don't have to have all this figured out either. And I think that took a lot of weight off the organization. But we're still living in this endemic COVID world right now. And I can just see I live in the San Francisco Bay Area. We're still not back to what I would consider to be normal. Monday and Friday, you know, where commutes would be largely hours long, there is no traffic. So clearly people are not back to what probably is a new normal quite yet. So th this will continue to play out. Do you think, and I know San Francisco has been in the news a lot compared to places like New York for that reason, do you think it ever does get back to close to what it was pre-pandemic, Jim? Or is it that is the new normal in places like San Francisco? That's the new normal. You know, it's going to be interesting to see the impact that it has on residential and commercial real estate. But companies have been very public, and we know who they are, about we're a permanent work-from-home culture. We're allowing you to work everywhere. I have real mixed emotions about that. Do you think your board experience, both on the Wayfair board and other boards, help to better prepare you for the CTO role. Talk a little bit about the different perspectives you have to have in a full-time operating role and then the perspective and what you have to focus on in a public board role. Yeah, that's a great question. It's interesting because when I took the CTO role, I knew for a fact that June 30th, 2022 would be my date that I would be done. And I made that perfectly clear. And that really, in many ways, lit a fuse because I had a large transformation to do. And one, going and being the CTO from being a board member, I knew the company well. It's a founder-led company. I knew the culture well. 
And I knew the players well, but I have to admit, I didn't understand all the nuances and the details as you would expect being a board member. That I was not an operating executive. It was a unique experience because going from being a board member to the CTO, even the interim CTO role, which I first started with, was really seamless. And it's interesting because in many ways, it gave me a clinical detachment. It arguably was probably the most successful role that I've been in. And it was largely because one, I knew when it was going to end and what I had to do by that end date. And literally, I would wake up every day and go, okay, you know, it's T minus one day to that date. Where are we relative to that transformation plan? So there was no kick the can down the road because I was adamant that whoever I handed my role off to, I was going to give them that role largely with that transformation complete, number one. Two, I went in with, and maybe this is a combination of maybe being older and more mature, but I really had no emotional attachment to the job, so to speak. I knew that it would not personify my career and didn't necessarily look at it and go, well, what's going to be after Wayfair? You know, for me, it was like, I've got a job to do. It may take two or three years to get done. It's a big job and we've got to do it with clinical precision and emotional detachment. And that's not to say that I wasn't passionate about it. I felt very strongly about what we were trying to complete, but it was a unique experience and it was largely very successful. But again, it was somewhat unique, but going from a board member to an operating executive in the company that you're on, it's a very interesting and, and unique perspective. I chose not to go back to the board because one, I felt like it was the right thing to enable my successor to like literally do the job. I'm not gonna second guess you. And secondly, as a board member, you want to be independent from a governance perspective. And I could not go from being a board member to an operating member to back to being a board member and have any modicum of independence. For all my talk about emotional detachment, I probably was emotional and am emotionally attached to it. So that just wouldn't work out. Would you say the relationships you build both with fellow board members when you're on the board, but then members of the management team, did that help smooth some of the ramp up when you stepped into the CTO role? Very much so. You know, I had the confidence of both the board and the exec team who I knew very well and almost too much. You know, I've got a couple of funny stories about this, but, you know, I would go to the board and present this very large transformation plan. And I told them, look, don't take my word for this. Like, I want pushback. I want you to literally second guess me. You all think that I have all the answers. I don't. I think they respected me too much at times and they deferred to me too much. So I wish they would have pushed back a little bit more. It ended up being perfectly fine. Fantastic. So Jim, as we bring the conversation to a close here, looking ahead, what specific leadership skill sets and capabilities will be most important for you in your board member and advisor roles? Yeah, I think the best way to prepare is really understand and talk to board members. I mean, first, have a skill that is absolutely critical for a board right now. If I look at boards, you know, we've got a diversity problem with boards right now, but we also have a skills gap. I think we're still living in a legacy where we've gone through a massive digital transformation and digital disruption. Many of the boards that I see have a dearth of digital and analytical skills and capabilities. You know, I always look at it and go, hey, look, if you want to get on a board, make yourself useful and indisposable. When you build a board, you know this better than I do, you're looking for an amalgam of skills and capabilities and an amalgam of culture. You have to understand that, and this is probably the hardest thing, back I was coaching a new board member last week, you're no longer an operator. And many first board members, they are still operators. So they have to really 
develop that empathy and that detachment of being responsible for, obviously, first and foremost, the governance of the company, being an advisor, a mentor, an observer, but knowing also when to back off being an operator. And you have to look at things and understand. And, and I find myself understanding that, or looking at the culture, the clock speed that the company operates at, and then being able to say, wow, like I understand the destination. I don't necessarily understand the route that they're taking or the speed at which they're taking. And if I were doing it, I would do it a different way. Well, okay, as a board member, it's not too effective to walk into your company and say, hey, I think you're doing it all wrong. This is how I would do it. But you have to develop the empathy, the relationship, the trust, where you can ask questions around. It's almost kind of like obtuse questions like, hey, why are you doing it that way? If I were to propose something, would you be open to it? What do you think about this? Like, hey, if I were doing that, I would do it differently. I'm not telling you how to do it. So you really develop this. You know, I've grown up in cultures that were very direct. And you have to, at least for me, I had to hone a different set of influence skills where it was very much okay, let me step back and understand the culture, appreciate why they're doing it that way and develop some empathy and objectivity. And I think that that's difficult for a first-time board member who walks in maybe guns blazing as like, hey, you know, what are you doing? And I've seen that happen and it doesn't go over very well. But again, I think that that's part of the path and the journey that every new board member takes. Yeah, no, it's such a good point. Jim, thanks so much. I mean, again- Yeah, my pleasure, Nick. In my role, right, leading this digital infrastructure practice, it's an area of such unbelievable disruption now. Like you just take the hyperscalers are growing like crazy. They're its own category. You talked about the hybrid cloud piece, right? VMware, HPE, Red Hat. There's a whole subsection there. You've got the traditional DRTs and Equinixes. So like, how does it all fit together? You know, companies' cloud compute needs are different. So we're we're excited about it. And so this is going to be a little bit of a kind of a launch around, hey, this is what we're doing. This is how we're thinking. Well, yeah, I think what's interesting too, and I had this little group of classmates from MIT that all went off to go do interesting things in their careers and largely are now kind of winding down, but we still talk quite a bit. And yeah, Wilkie, the CEO of Amazon and that group and and others. And, and, you know, it's interesting because you think about, we could talk about ML and AI and data science. We even talked, we didn't even touch on IoT it's amazing to me, like, this is going to be decades. I mean, I'll be long, probably dead by the time this is all done. But, you know, you just kind of look at it and go, it is really like, I don't know, my father worked at IBM and was a senior exec there and really lived in the whole mainframe era. And, you know, he's still alive. And he's like, wow, I can't believe like seeing this whole thing, how it's evolved. And this is going to be still decades in the making. So it's largely still in its infancy, I would argue. Well, Jim, thank you so much for your time here. You've had such an unbelievable career, so many different experiences in different areas and sharing your perspective on these topics is, I think, incredibly valuable. So thanks again for the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was a pleasure and hopefully this will be helpful to somebody. Thanks for listening to the Hydrogen Struggles Leadership Podcast. To make sure you don't miss more future shaping ideas and conversations, please subscribe to our channel on the podcast app. And if you're listening via LinkedIn, Twitter, or YouTube, why not share this with your connections? Until next time.